First Peter chapter 5. Look at verse 5. It says, likewise, you younger people. Somebody say, that's me. Submit yourselves to you older people. Turn to your neighbor. Say, that's you. <laughs> yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Be clothed with humility. There are places in Scripture, the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, both tell us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on. The same way I put on this coat or you put on those clothes. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you say that's the same thing that this verse is saying to us right here? To put on humility would be to put on Jesus. See, that's what... There, there is a, there's a unity, there's a place of unity that I believe some of us have experienced, some people in some churches and some places have experienced to a certain degree. But you, you make a study sometime out of any environment, large or small, that has it. I, I don't know how else to say it, just has it. That, that it thing, that you go into that place and it's just like, it's alive. It's electric. Nobody in this room is bored. Nobody in this room is asleep. Whatever it is, they've just got that thing. The environment is just charged. I, I, I like doing this. I like studying when, when uh, bands go into a, a huge stadium. I'll get the DVDs or I'll watch it or something and just watch as 50,000 people just go nuts over these four guys on a stage or whoever it is, one singer, one musician. And you've got 50,000 people in there screaming and shouting and going ballistic all with each other. Do you think anybody in there is sleeping? Is anybody in there bored? No, why? Because the atmosphere itself is alive. Well, think about what happened before that moment. You had all 50,000 people driving to that place, right, from perhaps hundreds of miles in every direction, and they're all coming together. And what are they saying the entire time? What are they saying? This is going to be good. This is going to be amazing. This is going to be amazing. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. And you got people coming in from 360 degrees going, this is going to be amazing. Going to be amazing. Going to be amazing. And car loads and truck loads and van loads of people and screaming teenage girls. <laughs> Justin Bieber in concert tomorrow night. <laughs> right? And then what are they all saying? I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. What is that called? It's called expectation. It's called expectation. And then what do they do once they get there? This is, this is the, the beauty of music. It's perhaps one of the only voices, if you will, that we have that enables us to all say the same thing at the same time. Do you know what a modern miracle that is? When there's so much division, when there's so much division in families, when there's so much division in, in groups of people and in races and in uh, demographics and in age and gender and politics, and, all, and there's just division, division, division. What, what a miracle music is. And then all we had to do tonight was put some words on this screen and every single one of us, all six, six or 8,000 of us, how many is in here tonight? We're all looking at this. And every one of us 
saying the same thing at the same time. What a miracle, right? What's that called? That's called unity. And that's exactly what happens when you get an environment. I don't care if it's some teenage heartthrob or some band or some musician. Whoever it is, you got everybody in there. You got 50,000 people singing at the top of their lungs. And they all sang this song on the way here, going, I hope he sings this, I hope he sings this. Oh, I can't wait for him to sing this. And then they got there and everybody's going, baby, baby, baby. <laughs> right? We can edit that later. Right? <laughs> and they don't care what they sound like because in their mind, they sound just like him. <laughs> right? You got people holding the one ear. And... Like, let your ear go, baby. It ain't helping you. It is not helping you. But everybody's saying the same thing at the same time. And even down to what they wear. You look around and I, I, you see this a lot at sporting events. Same kind of crowd, right? 50, 80, 100,000 people. And it's just a sea of blue and white. Or just a sea of red and gold or whatever the colors are. Everybody has put on the same thing. What do you suppose church would be like? What do you suppose Sunday morning all over the world would be like? It wouldn't take 50,000. It wouldn't take 30,000. It wouldn't even take 10,000. If you just had a few people driving in going, this is going to be good. I'm excited about this. Man, I'm going to get something from church today. And they're coming in going, Father, I lift up my pastor to you right now. Lord, you know what needs to be said. And I thank you, Lord, for anointing him. I thank you, Lord, for anointing her. And I receive them as a gift from you to me through Jesus. They are a demonstration of your grace in my life. What do you think church would be like if we drove in like that instead of, where are we eating after church today? <laughs> What do you suppose church would be like if we all started saying the same thing? Even beyond the songs, even beyond the lyrics. And if we all limited our words to only what we heard our father say. We all limited our actions to only what we saw our father do. What do you suppose this place would be like? Man, it seriously gives me chills to think. What do, you, what do you suppose this place would be like if we all wore the same thing every Sunday? Now, I'm not talking about wearing your favorite colors or our church colors or green and white or whatever it is. I'm talking about every single one of us putting on the Lord Jesus, putting on humility, putting on Jesus himself. You come in here clothed with him. And whatever you were wearing, if it was offense or if it was anger or if it was bitterness or whatever it was, you take that off. It didn't look good on you anyway. And you put on Jesus. And the, the, the funny thing is when you think about it, all these, these natural environments, be it music or sports or, or, or whatever it is, you know, you really need that many people. If you want this to be an amazing event, you can't rent a stadium and put that band up there and 12 people in the crowd. They might enjoy it, 
But it's not the same, is it? What if that same band that you love was performing in, in a retirement community somewhere, a retirement home? It's just not the same, right? It's just not as electric, <laughs> except for maybe the chairs. But other than that, it's just, it's just not electric. And they really need, I mean, you take that, that team that you love, that athletic team, sports of any kind, they need 50,000 people in the, in the stands cheering. Otherwise, it's just practice, right? You know how many people Jesus said you needed? Two or three. He said, if two or three of you would come together in my name, there I am in the midst of my friend, you have never been in an electric environment until Jesus has been in manifestation where you are. Now, I had no intention of saying any of that. So just, that was free. You're welcome to say it's delicious or whatever you'd like. I don't know. I don't but all that to say, what his instruction is here is to be clothed with humility. Now he goes on. He says, for God resists the proud. Be clothed with humility because God resists the proud. Now, he's quoting uh, Proverbs chapter 3 here, but you go and study Old Testament, New Testament, and you find out God has some very strong feelings when it comes to pride. He resists the proud. The Bible says there's a few things God hates, and pride is a couple of them. He hates it. The Bible tells us that he hates the lying tongue and the proud look. In other words, if it even looks like pride, he don't want anything to do with it. And he resists the proud. Now, if you knew anything about God at all, if you knew anything about the nature of your heavenly father, then you would know that his very nature, his very character is to throw open wide the doors of the throne room and say, hey, y'all, come on in. Come boldly to the throne of grace because when you get there, judgment's not waiting for you there. Condemnation's not waiting for you there. Criticism and ridicule's not waiting for you there. Anger's not waiting for you. What's waiting for you at the throne of grace? More grace and more mercy. Say amen if you believe it. Respond. Come on now. If you knew anything about God at all, you, you would know that he said, if you lack anything, if you lack wisdom, all you have to do is ask in faith, believing you receive it. And he would give it. He gives to all. And the Bible says he doesn't even upbraid you for not having it. It doesn't even reprove you for not having something you probably should already have. He doesn't even, doesn't even, doesn't even get on to you. doesn't even chastise you, doesn't even rebuke you for that. You just came and said, God, I need wisdom, and I believe your word says that Jesus has been made unto me wisdom, so I ask you for it, and I believe I receive it. And the Bible says he gives liberally. That's our God, this giving, welcoming, loving Father. And if you knew any of that about him, you'd read a verse like this, God resists the proud, and lights would start going off and you're thinking, you'd be thinking, okay, wait, time out. This loving, caring, giving, and forgiving God is still in resistance? This is a, this is a huge statement. 
when, he, when it says God resists the proud, you look this up in other translations, and even by the definition of this word resist, it says God opposes the proud. <clears throat> God opposes the proud. There's a verse that we may even get to in the course of this evening, but we quote it a lot. We sing it a lot. Romans chapter 8, I believe it's somewhere, verse 31, 32. If God be for us, somebody help me, who can be against us? And we love that, don't we? But let me tell you something. If God be against us, tell me who could possibly be for us. How many people could we amass to be against God and try to overcome him? You're not going to. I I know that this seems graceless in what I'm saying, and I I feel like I just need you to have an open heart to it because we're going to fix all of this here in a second. But I want you to see the severity of what he's saying here. God, it's it's not even as though God is saying, he, he's all mad at you and his arms are crossing and he's saying, fine, be that way. I'm, I'm just not going to play with you anymore. That's not <laughs> what God is saying to you. There is something in the nature of pride that God must stand in opposition to. And don't you know it hurts him? Don't you know the heart of our father is crying out for you to know how much he's for you? And not against you? But am I reading scripture to you? God resists the proud. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know what all that means. I do know I don't want it. I know that much. I do not want to be resisted and opposed by God. So here's the good news. God resists the proud, but gives grace. He gives grace to the humble. This is good news. This is, in other words, this is why you should be clothed with humility. You don't want to be resisted. You want grace. And if you didn't know you want grace, let me be the first to inform you. You want grace. You need grace. I don't understand people who want to get into conversation with God about what they do and don't deserve. That's not a conversation you want to have with him. So stop it. Stop feeling like you deserve something. Stop feeling like you've done something enough to deserve some reward, some payment. And what's more, stop telling him what you think you don't deserve. We're good at that, aren't we? Oh, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. Oh, Lord, we're not worthy of this. Oh, Lord, we don't deserve, we don't deserve. He knows that. Shut up. Get off of what you don't deserve and get over into grace. Get over into mercy. Let's talk about some grace. Because when you're living in grace, it's not about what you do or don't deserve. It's about what Jesus deserves and him giving you what he deserves. Oh, that's the conversation I want to have. Now tell me, who gets that grace? The humble. The humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the, to the humble. Verse 6, therefore, or in other words, it only makes sense, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God 
that he may exalt you in due time. Humble yourself in light of this revelation that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What will you do with that information? If you're smart, you will humble yourself, right, under the mighty hand of God so that, or there's a result from this, he would exalt you in due time. This verse, can I tell you what this verse is about? This verse is to help you locate which side of the mighty hand you're on. You're either being resisted by that mighty hand or you're being exalted by the mighty hand. It's just to help you identify where you're at. Now, here's what's really interesting about this whole passage to me. And if you're passionate about the Word of God, you love to study the Word, you love revelation, then there's something in here that I think will really interest you, and that is this. Verse 7 comes immediately after verse 6. Isn't that interesting? <clears throat> I, just, I find that interesting. And, he, and here's, here's what's interesting about it. It's like that almost all the way through the Bible. What's the point? Keep reading. So many of your deepest, most troubling theological questions could be answered if you just keep reading. What do you say to a child who, walking through a store, has pulled some really nice object off the shelf, and because fear has filled your heart that he's about to break it and you're about to buy it, what do you say to that child? Put that back where you found it. And I would say that to a lot of preachers, sometimes preaching messages by taking some scripture way out of its context and making it say something about God it doesn't say. You know what I would say? Put that back where you found it <laughs> and keep reading. So read verse, read verse 5 and 6 again. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Verse 6 is the what. Verse 7 is the how. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. I don't think that we've been quick to realize that these two thoughts really are one. You've got this thought or this message on not being in pride and living humble. Then you've got this other message and this other thought on casting your care onto the Lord. Well, we just went through this whole silly explanation. Verse 7 comes after verse 6. There's not even a period between them. How do we humble ourselves? Because if you're anything like me and I'm anything like you, which we are much alike, we want grace, don't we? Don't we? James chapter 4, we won't take time to turn there, but James chapter 4, it's really interesting, basically says the exact same thing 1 Peter 5 does. Verse, James chapter 4, verse 6, I think, says, but God gives more grace. He gives more grace. Somebody say, more grace. Say it again. Say, more grace. more grace. Man, that's what you need. You don't know me. You don't know what I need. I don't know you, but I do know what you need. You need more grace. 
Because whatever the need is, more grace will fix it. And a revelation of the grace that you already have, you'll wake up and realize his grace has been sufficient for you the whole time. But if he's giving more grace, I want more grace. Amen? Say it again. Say more grace. grace. This is the key to more grace. This is the answer. This is... This is the revelation of how we're going to keep from being in opposition to God. We're so interested so much of the time in getting God on our side, getting God on our side. You need to forget that and just be on his. Just be on his side. And if you got to change something, change it and be on his side. If you got to change the way you think, change the way you think and get on his side. Because he's not changing the way he thinks to get on your side. Amen? Just get on his side, not in opposition to him, but on the grace side, on that mercy side, on that kindness side. Are you with me? On the Jesus side, living on the Jesus side of life. That's where we need to be. And the key to this, according to this verse, is casting all our care onto him. So if casting our care... And you understand, when he says care here, what's he talking about? Worry. Casting all your worry. Casting all your anxiety. Casting all that tormenting fear. Casting all that stress. Casting all that care onto him. If casting it onto him is humility, somebody tell me what carrying it is. It's pride. Now, pride is one of those things. Pride is one of those things that is so easy to recognize in somebody else. Right? Oh, that guy's in pride. Oh, look at her. She's just full of pride. Mm, Just pride, 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 pride. It's really easy to recognize in somebody else. But there's always some excuse for it in ourselves. Did you know that one of the chief manifestations of pride in your life is worry. Carrying your own care. This is what we're going to get into tonight, tomorrow, Sunday. Casting all our care onto him for he cares for us. Amen? The title of this message, the title of this series, you want to know what it is? Who cares? Who cares? Seriously, I mean it. Who cares? And this is a question we ask each other a lot, right? You get a piece of information and it really means nothing to you. What do you say? Who cares? You got to make that little sound, right? Who cares? Who cares about this? Who cares about that? But I'm asking you this question. It's not just the title of this message or the title of this series. It's a real question that you need to be able to answer. Who cares? Who cares about your life? People start looking at me funny when I say stuff like, I'm serious. Who cares about you? (laughs) It's okay. You can smile. We're going to be all right. But it's a real question. I really mean it. Who cares about you? Who cares about your kids? Hmm? Who cares about your, who cares about your job? These are real questions. That every believer, every spirit-filled 
believer who has come in contact with Jesus and is in a living, vibrant relationship with Him, you need to be able to answer this question. And I believe there are two appropriate answers. If you are a Christian, there are two ways to answer this question, and they're both right. Who cares? First right answer, not me. Not me. I am casting all my care onto Him, for He cares for me. Who cares? And number two, the second right answer to this question that we're really going to spend our time with tonight, who cares? Who cares about you? Jesus does. Jesus does. Who cares about your life? Jesus does. Who cares about your family? Jesus does. Who cares about your health? Jesus does. Who cares about your prosperity, your abundance, your needs being met? Jesus does. Who cares about your kids? Who cares about putting food on your table? Who cares about putting clothes on your back? Jesus does. And by the time this is all through, I'm not going to be the only one saying that. Go with me. Are you holding uh, Matthew chapter 6? Good. Keep holding it. We're not ready to go. Okay. First Peter chapter 5. Listen to this again. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now, there's two ways, I think, of interpreting this, and we're going to spend time with one of them tonight. I'll go ahead and give you kind of a preview of where we're headed. He cares for you. There's a revelation here that we're really going to drive home, and that is how much you and I are loved by God. The reason you're carrying your care, the reason you haven't been able to shake the worry, the reason you go to bed and you can't sleep because that one thought is playing over and over and over in your mind and you wake up with it the next morning and you carry it with you throughout the day and you go to bed with it again the next night, the reason you can't shake that is because you have no idea how much you're loved. He cares for you. Now, just a little preview of where we're headed tomorrow. Not only does he care for you, he cares for you. Are you with me? He'll do the caring for you. Not only does he love you, not only does he care for you, he cares for you. But let's spend some time talking about this tonight, just, just a little bit of time. How much we are loved by God. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Say amen if you believe in any of this. In Matthew chapter 6, I want you to look at verse 24. And these are the words of Jesus. And I hope that hits you right in your heart the way it hits me. These are the words of Jesus. I've made a decision in my life that when Jesus, I come across something Jesus said, I'm no longer going to say the Bible says this or this particular scripture or Matthew chapter 6 verse 24. I'm going to say Jesus said this. In, in, in my heart, it just carries more weight. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, be careful when you hear this. Be watchful that you don't hear this and say, yeah, rich guy, you can't serve God and money. 
Because this isn't just talking to one group of people. What is it to be a servant of someone or something? If you are the servant, then you are constantly consulting with the one that you serve, right? And if you are the servant, you require permission before you do anything. And if you want to do something, you have to go consult with the one that you serve and you say, can I do this? Do you want me to do this? What is it I'm supposed to do? What is my job? What can I do for you? Why? You're the servant and they're the one you serve. And Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. Now, I don't care how much money you have, how much money you don't have, or how much money you wish you had. We are all... There's potential for all of us to find ourselves serving money in one way or another. When you constantly consult with money, the Lord has led you to do something. You get that still, small voice on the inside. Your pastor said something. Put in front of you a project. We're going to get involved in this. We're going to clothe these kids. We're going to build this building. We're going to send these people uh, 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 into another country. And something comes alive on the inside of you and you say... I got to be a part of that. Lord, let me be a part of that. And even if you're not the one going, you want to put money in the hands of the ones that are going because it came alive on the inside of you. But watch, be watchful. If you try to serve God and money, you will take that excitement and then turn to your wallet and say, um, excuse me, sir, I have a question. Is, it, is now a good time? Can I, can I, ask, can I ask you a question? Um, money. I have this project that, that God has instructed me to get involved in, but I was going to ask you, is it okay for me? Is, is now a good time? And most often, money will look back at you and say, ah, no, not such a good time. You know, you start giving me away now, and uh, I might run out before the end of the month. You don't want me running out. You don't want me running out on you, do you? Uh, uh, no, sir. No, sir. Forgive me. I, I shouldn't have asked. I, I apologize. <laughs> but people are serving money. People are serving money. Now, what's interesting about this is what Jesus says in the very next statement. Therefore, he said in verse 25, I say to you, do not worry. Do not worry. He said all this in light of your attitude and your mindset when it comes to finances. And if there is one thing that people are killing themselves, and I mean that literally, with worry over, it's money. It's money. In constant service to money. And Jesus said, therefore I say to you, do not worry. Do not worry about your life Do not worry about what you will eat. Do not worry about what you will drink. Do not worry about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Do not worry. Say those three words with me. Say them. Do not worry. Now tell me, who said this? Jesus Jesus said this. Now what's interesting about the words do not, you go look them up in, in your other translations, um, find the original text, and you're going to find that it could have and maybe even should have been translated like this. Stop it. Look it up for yourself. There's other translations that, that carries it out like this. Jesus said, stop worrying about your life. Stop it. Stop it. You study it out. 
These two words, do not, translate as stop it. They are some of the strongest, most prohibitive speech that you could have used. This is a strong command from who? From who? From who? Now let me ask you a quick question. Just, Just a little side note here. If Jesus tells you not to do something and you do it anyway, what's that called? It's called, dis- I hear somebody say disobedience. Just, just dumb it down for me. Little three-letter word. What's it called when Jesus tells you to do something and you don't do it? Or he tells you don't do something and you do it anyway. What's it called? Sin. It's called sin. And if Jesus said, stop worrying and you go ahead and worry, what's that called? It's sin. You can feel people not really grabbing when, when you talk about this because it, for most of us, we would say, well, it's, it's, it's only natural that we worry. And you know what I would say to that? You're exactly right. It is only natural. That's, that's all it is. It is natural. It's the nature of the flesh. It is not the nature of God. It is not the nature of Jesus. Everybody know what a hypocrite is? You know what a hypocrite is? Somebody who says one thing and believes something else or does something else. Was Jesus a hypocrite? No. So whatever he's telling us to do, this must be the way he lived, right? And if he's telling us to stop worrying, then we know this about him. He didn't worry. He wasn't worried. Do not... He said, do not worry or stop worrying about your life, what you will eat. Don't worry about your clothes or don't worry about your food and drink, what you're going to put on the table. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? I said much more clothe you. Who cares about the clothes on your back? What's the answer? Jesus does. Who cares about the food on your table? Now, you got to be watchful. If you come to me or you go to your pastors maybe from now on and you say, Pastor, I just don't know what I'm going to feed my family with. I, I just don't know how I'm going to clothe my kids. Baby's got to have some shoes. It's get, it gets cold up here. We've got to have a coat. Be very careful because if you come to me and start talking about that, I'm going to look back at you and you know what I'm going to say? Who cares? And it might make you mad, but I mean it. I'm seriously, genuinely asking you a question that you need to have an answer to. Who cares? And you need to know both right answers. Number one, not me. And number two, he does. And we're going to get into this as the weekend progresses, but but I want to put this in right here. If you're doing the caring, he can't. I said, if you're doing the caring, if you're doing the worrying, 
He can't care for you. It's either all in his hands or all in yours. It cannot be grace and works. Oh, come on. Is this delicious to anybody else in here but me? It cannot be grace and works. It's either got to be all grace or all works. And if it's all your works, then there is sorrow added to it. But if it's all Jesus, then it's all Jesus. And he said, again in verse 30, look at this again. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? You have got to get an understanding and a revelation of how much you are loved. He loves you so much that he cares about the clothes on your back, the clothes that you clothe your children with. He cares about the food on your table. But Jesus added this statement at the very end of that question. He said, will he not much more clothe you, oh, you of little faith? If you're you're laying awake at night and worry has robbed you of your sleep and robbed you of your rest, if you're the one doing the caring, then there's only one, it it can only mean one thing, you're not in faith. You cannot be in faith and worried. And some of you who are still trying to swallow this pill that worry is sin and not just good parenting, The Bible says whatever is not of faith, whatever is not of faith is what? Is sin. So the presence of worry is the absence of faith. The presence of you carrying this care, the presence of that troubled thought. This is the New King James. I think Jesus said it like this in the King James. Take no thought for your life. Take no worried, take no anxious thought for your life. Don't take it. Don't take it. You don't have to take every thought that comes. Did you know that? I said, don't take it. Somebody knocks on your door dressed as the package delivery man. In America, they wear short brown shorts and tall brown socks. I don't know what they wear here, but (laughs) he's standing there in his short brown shorts and he says, I got a package for you. And you look in it, and it's nothing but snakes. Don't take it. You don't have to take it. I don't know. That was always the illustration they used in children's church when I was growing up. Don't sign for the snakes. Let's make it a little more applicable, right? You don't have to take every phone call that comes to your phone. Yeah, I can see that's still kind of working on you. This is big revelation right here. You ready for this? The person calling you doesn't own your phone. You own your phone, which means you don't have to take the call. Don't you just love caller ID? I think it's just, it's just, that is a day-saving invention right there. Caller ID. I was in high school one time, and this teacher threatened A friend of mine said, that's it. I'm calling your parents. And he said, that's all right. We got caller ID. (laughs) 
What am I saying? Don't take the call. Don't take the thought. You don't have to take every thought that comes your way. Jesus said in the book of Mark, chapter 11, he said, whatever you say, believe that you receive it and you will have it. He said that. That word receive, you want to know what that word means? It means to take. It means to take. When you pray, believe that you take it. Believe that you take what God has for you. Believe that you receive it. Well, it's the same thing he's saying here. Just flip. Just flip. Take what God has for you, but don't take worried, anxious thoughts. What do you do with those thoughts? You take them captive. I don't want to get over into that, but th- th- this, is how you, this is how you address this. You take these thoughts captive to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. You take it captive, but you do not have to receive every thought you think. Now, that's big to somebody in here right now. So you got to get a hold of that right now. You don't have to take every thought you think. As a matter of fact, when you think something and you have felt so guilty over that, I can't believe I thought that. I must not really be saved. I can't believe I thought that. I must not really love my husband. I must not really love my wife because I thought this about this other person. You know what you do when you think that? You say out loud, that's not my thought. That is not my thought. And I do not take that thought. Jesus said, don't take the thought. Do not worry. Let me bring it back around to this and maybe we'll start to close sometime soon. I don't know. But he said, if you are still worried about what you're going to wear, worried about your life, what you're going to eat, worried about your family, worried about your finances, constantly serving money, then the presence of that worry can only mean one thing, and that is the absence of faith. The presence of worry is the absence of faith. Go to Mark chapter 5. Excuse me, Mark chapter 4. Say amen. Amen. Mark chapter 4, look at verse 35. It says, On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Jesus said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, Do you not care that we are perishing? In other words, you don't care. Jesus was asleep. And these guys run downstairs and shake him like they ain't got any good manners and wake the Son of God up. (laughs) And not only do they wake him up, they wake him up with accusations. They wake him up accusing him of not caring about them. Jesus didn't even say anything to them. And in verse 39, he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind and the sea said, "Uh, okay. (laughs) But he said to the disciples, 
Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Worry is the same thing as fear, isn't it? So you're either building your life on one of two platforms. Your life is either built on faith, the platform of faith in God and faith in his word and faith in Jesus and faith in what Jesus has accomplished. And if it is built on that platform, then you, you have an expectation called hope. But the only person who has any right to hope is the person who has faith in Jesus. That's what hope is. It's expectation. It's the expectation of good to come. And you have people that just throw this word hope around, and we say, well, are you coming tonight? Oh, I hope so. That's not what hope means. That means, really, it means no, I'm not. But, but we, we haven't had a real good understanding of what real Bible hope means. Hope means I expect something good to happen. How could you expect that? How could you expect that in this economy? How could you expect that when people around you are being diagnosed? And, and how could you expect to live a healthy, strong life when all the men in your family had heart trouble because of my faith in Jesus? That's what yields my expectation called hope. And you're either built on that platform or you're built on this platform called fear and it yields an expectation called worry. And worry is the expectation, this is not going to go good. Worry is the expectation, this is not going to work out in my favor. Worry is the expectation that this is not going to be good for me. Worry is the expectation that says my dad was sick, his dad was sick, so I'm probably going to get sick. That's what worry is. And it will work on you and work on you and work on you until you're consumed with it. But these guys came downstairs in that boat and woke Jesus up and said, you don't care about us. And then he calmed the storm. And then he said to them, how are you so full of fear? How is it that you have no faith? The presence of worry is the absence of faith. If you are fearful, you are faithless. But you cannot be both. You cannot be full of fear and full of faith. You cannot be. It's impossible. You cannot be. How did Jesus know these guys had no faith? Are you still with me? Have I lost anybody yet? How did Jesus know these guys had no faith? Because faith works by love. In other words, faith works when you know how much you're loved. Where there is no revelation of love, watch this, there is no operation of faith. Where there is no revelation of love, there is no operation of faith. These guys came downstairs and they questioned Jesus' love. You don't care. My friend, listen to me. You can, you can go to God with just about anything and he can handle it. Just come in faith. All you have to do is come in faith. And he can handle any question. He can handle any concern. But let me just advise you that from now until the end of this life and for the rest of the next one, don't ever again, ever, ever, never, ever, 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 never, never, ever, ever, never again question whether or not he loves you. Just don't do it. 
And if you are still living with this worry and carrying your own care, it's for one reason. You have no idea how much you're loved. And I've heard this same passage taught that Jesus expected these guys to stand up in that boat and say the same thing he did to that storm. And, and, and maybe, maybe not, I don't know. They'd never seen him do that before. And I believe that there are power in our, our words. There is power in our words. This is what Jesus said. Whatever you say, believe that you receive it, you will have it. Jesus said that. But just screaming at weather is not in itself faith. Did you know that? Storms coming and you go out on your front porch and you just start screaming scriptures at the storm. That by itself is not faith. Now, it could be an outworking or a demonstration of it, but by itself, it's not faith. So how did Jesus know these guys had no faith? Because they questioned his love. I remember one day I was with my grandfather. Some of you may know, may know my, my grandparents, Kenneth and Gloria Copeland. Been in ministry a long time. You may have seen them on television. They preached all over the world for 40 years, 45 years now. And um, you may, may or may not know this about my grandfather, but he's a pilot. He has been a pilot for 50 years, thousands and thousands of hours, logged in so many different kinds of airplanes. Well, he calls me one day and says, hey, let's go fly. Let's just go fly. Sounds great, right? So we go get in the airplane. <laughs> And uh, we taxi in the airplane, and we taxi out to the end of the runway. Now, in Texas, uh, where we're from, weather can change in a minute. I mean, real quick. And from the time we got in the airplane to the time we taxied out to the end of that runway, storms started rolling in. And if you don't know anything about flying, don't fly in a storm, if you can at all avoid it. Lightning plus airplanes equals frowny face. Do not, <laughs> just do not do that. And so, you know, he's a good pilot. He says, you know what, Jeremy, we, we don't need to be flying around in this. Let's go back to the house. And so we, we taxi back to the hangar. And by the time we got back to the hangar, these clouds had gotten low and dark and green. And do you guys get tornadoes here? We have tornadoes that pass through, and they just wreck whole towns, just pick up houses and put them on other streets. I mean, they're just nasty. And when you start seeing the clouds get low like that and, and that uh, funnel formation start to form, and that's when people start running for the hills, man, or start trying to find shelter. But not my grandfather. He, at that time, probably 70 years old. He's 75 now. Jumped out of that airplane and with his finger in the air, ran across his property shouting at that storm. I come at you in the name of Jesus, who I belong to and whom I serve. You will do no damage on this property today. You remove yourself and you leave this place. And I'm just watching this whole thing happen. And I'm, I'm chasing this storm like it's a stray dog in his front yard. And I kid you not, I do not exaggerate and I do not lie. I watched as all that just sucked right back up into the sky. No tornado, no damage. I think he scared it. <laughs> I think he's scared. I think that cloud just rained in its pants a little bit. Like right then, at the, at the sound of that roar, 
And people who kind of know my family or know my grandparents from a distance, Kenneth Copeland, he's that faith guy, faith guy, right? He's the guy that talks about faith, 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 faith. And it's true. There are a lot of, lot of messages, ministry built on preaching faith in Jesus. But what I know about him is this. I don't know anybody else who has spent more time meditating on, growing in, and developing in how much he is loved by God. Faith works when you know how much you're loved. Fear leaves when you know how much you're loved. Isn't that what 1 John chapter 4, verse, eight, verse 18 says? It says, perfect love does what to fear? Drives it out. Casts it out. It says, there is no fear in love. It drives out fear. And then like this. Because fear has torment. Why does love drive out fear? Because love does not want you tormented. Did you catch that? Perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. What is the torment of fear? What is it? Worry. It's worry. To lay there at night on an otherwise peaceful evening and be tormented in your soul over your negative expectation of tomorrow? Love does not want that in your life. He loves you so much that he wants to drive that out. And that's what the presence of love does. That's what a revelation of how much you are loved will do in you and will do for you. What did Jesus say in John chapter 3, verse 16? What did Jesus say? For God so loved the world. That tiny little word, so, I think we just skipped past it too much. That's a huge word to me in that verse. He so loved you. Don't we use that word a lot? I'm so hungry. I'm so hot, I'm so cold, I'm so tired. We're using that word so. What are we doing? We're trying to describe the extent or degree to which we feel something. And Jesus is going, he so loves you. This is Jesus saying this. But here's what's interesting about the word so. It's almost always followed by the word that. I'm so hungry that I could eat now, right now. I'm so Hot, I'm so cold, I'm so whatever, that. And whatever comes after the word that is your proof of so. Are you with me? Yes. Say amen if you're with me. Amen. I'm almost done, probably. <laughs> For God so loved you that he gave you his only begotten son. That whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. To believe in Jesus is to believe how much God loves you. To believe in Jesus is to believe and receive how much God loves you. To believe in Jesus is to believe how much God loves you. It's the same thing. 
can you see we've, we've had such a small understanding of John 3.16, and everybody's heard it. Everybody's heard it. Guys in crowds with signs and a marker, they've all heard John 3.16. Do you have that? We, at, at football games at home, you'll see a guy in the end zone holding up a sign, John 3.16. Everybody's heard it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believed in him would have not perish, but have everlasting life. But to believe that is to believe I'm loved. I am loved, and I'm not just loved, I am so loved. And I'm not just so loved, I'm so loved that he gave me Jesus. Come on, all right. Jesus was the only thing God could give you that would actually cost him something. You see this ring on my wife's finger? Look at this. It's a diamond ring. Pretty ring, right? You want to know why that, that, that I paid what I paid for that ring? Because supposedly, it's so rare. Diamonds are so expensive because they're so rare. Everybody with a diamond on your finger, can you hold it up here tonight? Yeah, look how rare they are. So rare. Or you can have, if you've got diamond in your teeth, wherever you've got diamond. <laughs> I don't know where you keep your diamond. But it's so expensive, right? Because it's so rare. That's why every other person on the planet, almost. <laughs> so rare. Well, the principle's true. The more rare something is, the more valuable it is, right? Jesus is the only thing God had just one of. Did you catch that? He loved you so much. Just think about all the stuff he could have given you. He could have given you gold, silver, and diamonds, and rubies, and pearls. He could have have given you angels. He could have given you planets. He makes them with his words. He could have given you stars. But he never would have missed any of it. Why? Because he's got millions and billions. But Jesus is the only thing he had just one of. He was the only begotten son. That's how much you're loved. That's how precious you are. That's how precious you are in the sight of God. And if you're still carrying your care, If you're still carrying the weight of worry, it's because you have no idea how much you're loved. You want to get rid of worry? Then you cast it onto the one who cares for you. The one who loved you so much that he gave you the only thing he had just one of. That's how much he loves you. And I don't know if you have this stupid little tradition in Canada that we have in the United States, and I have no idea where it started, but imagine, if you will, some guy, some lovesick young guy walks out into an empty field. He's just recently fallen in love, but he has not yet shared that feeling with this young girl. She caught his eye, and she caught more than that. She caught his heart, and he's torn up because why? He doesn't know if she feels the same way. So what does he do? He walks out of that empty field and picks that flower. Do you guys have this? 
stupid little thing we have. Okay. And he starts pulling off one pedal, one right after the other. And what does he say? Somebody help me. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. And in the field, just on the other side of the hill, is that same girl falling in love with this boy. And what is she doing over there? Pulling off pedals one by one. What is she saying? He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. But I want you to get this image in your mind. I want you to get an understanding. Get a picture of yourself. And you're, you're standing there holding that same dumb flower. And you're thinking about the love of your father. The committed love of your father. And you know what that sounds like? He loves me. 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 It's never he loves me not. And he doesn't just love you. He so loves you. And he didn't just so love you. He so loved you that he gave you Jesus. Let me read this to you out of Romans 8 and I'll close. Man, I've been preaching a long time. Sorry, Ricardo. I'm done, man. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. Why? Because he loved us, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Who is he who condemns? Is it Christ who died and furthermore is also risen? Who is even at the right hand of God? Who makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then he asks you these questions. Shall tribulation? What's the answer? Distress? Come on, shout it out. Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Sword? No, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Am I the only one excited about how much my Jesus loves me? How are you going to conquer worry through him? who loves you. How are you going to conquer fear through him who loves you? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Who cares about you? Who cares about your family? Jesus does. Who cares about your children? Jesus does. Who cares about the clothes on your back? Who cares about that stack of bills in your home right now? Who cares about that diagnosis you got from that doctor? Jesus does. Jesus does. He cares. And if he's the one doing the caring, there's no sense in both of us doing it. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. There's no, no use in both of you being awake. Receive your God-given rest and cast your worry 
onto him. Stand up with me. Say this after me. Say, Father, in Jesus' name, I repent for the sin of worry. I repent for trying to carry my own care. And I cast it onto you. I give it to you, Jesus. You take it. It's yours now. It's not mine. I don't take it. I take no worried thought. I take no anxious thought. But I receive my peace that passes all understanding, that guards my heart, that guards my mind in Christ Jesus. And I receive your love. I receive your love. I believe your love. And your love is casting out fear. Your love is driving out fear. Your love is displacing worry. Your worry or your love is casting out my care. And I receive it. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Just begin to thank the Lord. Just begin to thank Him. Thank Him. Thank Him.